Well, good morning. Welcome. Let us stand together and read God's word together as we are called to worship. Psalm 133 will be on the screens. Let's read this aloud together. Say this with me. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Well, these illustrations might be foreign to us. If you don't know much about beard oil, or as New Mexicans, we certainly don't know a lot about dew. But I think the point that the psalmist is trying to make is that this kind of unity, it touches everything. It gets everywhere. So my prayer this morning is that we would let the pleasantness of our unity, our oneness in Christ, get on everything in our service today, our singing, our praying, our hearing of God's word together. So let's start by singing out as one voice.
you're glad to be here singing as one with brothers and sisters in Christ. Say amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Welcome to this gathering of Desert Springs Church. My name is Tate Madzima, and I serve as the Minister of Children and Families. And it is my joy and privilege to welcome you to our gathering this morning. Uh, and especially if you're new and this is your first time here, uh, we're glad that you are here with us uh, on this Lord's Day. And we would love to meet you, uh, love to greet you. And if you have any questions about our church, uh, about the Lord and Savior that we worship, uh, we would love to take those questions and answer them for you. Uh, we, we're going to have some pastors up here at the end of the service uh, that would uh, be glad to meet you um, if you want to walk up here after service. Or uh, if you want to send us an email, you can do so uh, at uh, info at dscabq.com. I think I got that right. Um, and we would be glad to um, respond to that email and just uh, welcome you to our gathering. Um, I have a couple announcements this morning. And uh since I'm up here, there are going to be announcements for, about children and families. So uh, the first one is that on July 11th, we are going to be opening up a couple more rooms back there in the children's area for our four-year-olds, our five-year-olds, and kindergartners. So uh, yes, woos are, are welcome. That's, that's right. So um, we're just on the slow, slow track in opening up and resuming as normal. So that's the next... Uh, age group that we're going to add, and we will have those open July 11th uh, for both services. So if you have a four-year-old or a five-year-old and kindergartner, uh, we're going to be so excited to welcome them back there to teach them the gospel uh, as service is going on. So uh, look out for that. And then my second announcement is that we will have a family worship night on Friday, July the 16th. So um, this year, we, we weren't able to do VBS like we have done in previous years uh, as the pandemic uh, still rolls on, but hopefully next year we'll be able to do that. But in lieu of doing a full week VBS, we're going to do uh, Friday night worship, kind of like we do on our uh, last night of VBS. Uh, and Drew and Sarah and the band will, will be back together uh, leading us in worship, and we will uh, just learn about how Jesus came to save sinners. So uh, bring your families. Uh, it's, it's open to families uh, with kids from you know, birth all the way up to fifth grade. It's going to be a great time for us to be together, to worship the Lord together in song, uh, and to listen to his word uh, taught uh, so well, bring your friends, your neighbors, uh, if they have kids, uh, we just want to come together as families and uh, worship together uh, generationally. So uh, that's what's coming up. So mark that in your calendars, Friday, July 16th. If you guys would uh, bow your heads and uh, pray along with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins to save us and redeem us. And Bring us to know you, and this is why we gather here this morning, uh, to worship together in unison, to lift our voices to you, and to uh, have our hearts transformed and our minds renewed, uh, just based on your word, Lord. And we ask, Father, that you would inhabit our praises this morning. We ask, Lord, that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight this morning. So, Lord, just as we continue in worship, uh, Lord, we, we pray that we would be able to focus on you, Lord. Uh, I know we come into this room this morning with many different burdens and many different uh, thoughts and anxieties. And, Lord, I just ask that we would be able to lay those at your feet and enter into uh, worship and be encouraged and be edified by uh, the music and by the preaching of the word, Lord. And, 
be propelled as we go into our weeks, as we spend time with coworkers and neighbors and friends, Lord, that they would see that we are transformed by your gospel, that we would be a light in the darkness, that we would draw men and women to you because of how you have just saved us by your grace. And uh, we just thank you for that. And it's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. Let us stand now and join our voices as one and confess our need for his love and his grace. Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free, a heart that's sprinkled with the blood so freely shed for me.
thinking of how Paul said that he planted and another watered, but it was God who gave the increase. And so it's good for us to remember that in this story of our justification and sanctification, that the lead actor is not us, but it is our good and gracious and sovereign Father. Amen. And he always gets it done. What though the way be lonely And dark the shadows fall I know where'er it leadeth My Father planned it all The sun may shine tomorrow
You can be seated. Well, good morning. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Randy Pierce. I'm one of the uh, non-staff elders here at DSC. Would you uh, please join me in prayer? Lord, we mention our pain today, the pain of many in our country, the pain of many among us, the pain of those who've been mistreated, abused, deeply hurt by those who would use others for their pleasure. The wounds are deep and in many cases secret. No one knows. We are saddened, Lord, to think that much of this heinous sin has happened within the church from those who call themselves by your name. We are grieved that your image bearers have suffered, have been beat down by those entrusted to lead, to shepherd and care for hurting souls. And what can we say, Lord? Like Ezra, we blush even to mention these matters to you. And we are ashamed to think that reproach has come upon your name because of Christians, through Christian organizations, even at the hands of Christians who were given authority to do good to your people. But you, Lord, you rule over all things, even over every event that happens under the heavens. All that happens does so according to the counsel of your will. And we are your church, Lord, your body. The church, Lord, is your church. It's your idea. It's your plan. It's your institution. You created it. You fill it. You sustain it. You make it to be a pillar and fortress of what is true and right and good in this fallen and broken world. And so we say, Lord, redeem the hurt in your people. You hear, Lord, the groaning of those who have been wounded. You see and you know. Remember, Lord, the covenant you made with us through our only Savior, through Jesus Christ. Don't let the painful wounds turn to bitterness. For those who are fragile and about to break, for those whose light is dim and about to go out, would you remind them that a bruised reed you will not break and a smoldering wick you will not put out until you bring justice. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, bring healing to those who are reminded of old wounds. Give them the courage to seek the help they need. And would you, Lord Jesus, make Desert Springs Church one that cares deeply for those who have been abused. Let us, in faith, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And we ask these things for the sake of our Savior, the one who is true and always faithful to his word. Amen. to stand and continue in prayer through song. Cry out to our rock, our salvation.
got your Bible, we're going to be in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, so please turn there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to have the words up on the screen behind me, but it will be good for you to follow along. If I haven't met you before, my name's Chase Jacobs. I'm the Minister of Theological Training here at DSC, and you are coming in as we start to land the plane in the study that we've been doing in the book of Galatians. Our Passage this morning, verses 1 to 6, concludes the, the section of exhortation or imperatives in the letter of the book of Galatians. And then next week we will see the closing benediction of this epistle, and then, and then we'll be done. After that, we're going to start a series through the summer in uh, parables coming from the book of Luke. So if you have time over the next two weeks, I would encourage you to read through the gospel according to Luke and uh, get prepared for that series that we'll be doing. But as I said today, we're going to be looking at Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. So let me read these verses out loud to you. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. 
And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word, and we thank you that you are our rock and our redeemer. And I pray that you would uh, help us to hear what you have to say to us from your word this morning. Give us ears to hear Unstop them, open up our hearts, soften them. Lord, let the things that I say be faithful and right and true. And God, I pray that you would work faith in us by your Holy Spirit, that you would bring some to faith for the first time and others, that you would deepen our faith all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So if you couldn't tell as I was reading through these verses, uh, this is a little bit of a tricky passage to understand exactly what's going on. It's, it's easy enough to understand uh, one verse or another because what Paul is doing is he's kind of stringing together several maxims or proverbs, just simple statements that are true on their own that are worth meditating on. But our task as uh, readers and my task as the teacher this morning is to try and see what is sort of the overarching idea. Why did Paul put these proverbs or maxims together the way that he did? What's, what's the big idea that he's trying to get to and what's the logical flow from one idea to the next. And I think there is an overarching idea and there is a logical flow. And so we just have to look hard and work hard. And and in fact, I think we can start to understand what the logic of this passage is if we remember what came just before it because the logic flows out of especially verses 25 and 26 of chapter five. So if you have your Bible, look up there at verses 25 and 26. Paul writes, if we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, if you were with us last Sunday when we looked at these verses and and the ones that came before them, you would remember that this is a fitting close to how that section began all the way in chapter 5, verse 16, where Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Then he goes on in the following verses to talk about what the works of the flesh are And what are the fruit of the Spirit? And so verses 25 and 26 are a good close to that section, but they also serve to open up the section that we are in now, where he says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That phrase, keep in step with the Spirit, it's literally march with the Spirit. March to the same beat that the Spirit is marching to, and not just the Spirit, but one another keeping in step with one another as we all together keep in step with the Spirit. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on the book of Galatians, says this, The Holy Spirit does not produce the fruit of the Spirit for our private enjoyment. True spirituality is not an individualistic quest for self-fulfillment. The life of the Spirit flourishes for the sake of of others. It's not experienced in private primarily, but exercised in public. He says the spiritual life is meant to be shared. It's less like a fruit tree hidden away somewhere in a secret garden and more like one that grows in a public park. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is for. It's not for your sake, it's for the sake of others. And that's what this passage this morning is encouraging us to, to keep in step with the Spirit together, to bear the fruit of the Spirit to give to others. 
And when we do this, we fulfill a new law. That's what Paul is getting to. In our first point, verses one to three, he teaches us about the law of Christ. So verse one of our passage deserves a lot of attention. We could even just look at almost every single word in this passage. It begins, brothers, and you could also say that's brothers and sisters. This is directed to Christians, to everyone in this church in Galatia. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. That word transgression is just another way of saying sin, disobedience. It probably has in mind these works of the flesh that Paul just went through in, Romans, or in Galatians chapter 5. The works of the flesh that are so evident. Or it could also just mean anything that's contrary to the fruit of the spirit. Any kind of sin. It's worth saying, though, as we look at this, just to be clear, that I think when Paul is talking about someone being caught in transgression, what he doesn't have in view is someone that is making a practice of flagrant, ongoing, and unrepentant sin in their life. Okay, so this is, this is not speaking about unrepentant sin that has been addressed and is not being repented of, nor is it speaking of the kind of sin that is so serious that it calls a person's uh, whole profession of faith into question, the kind of sin that is so serious that it brings the whole community into disrepute. Okay, we would say that's a different kind, a, different, a whole different level of sin that's addressed by the closing verses in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, or, or in 1 Corinthians 5, where we talk about removal from the church, excommunication, formal church discipline. I don't think Paul is talking about being caught in that kind of transgression. What he's talking about with this word caught is someone being overtaken. That's the, that's the word caught what the word caught means, to be overtaken in a transgression. Now that can mean like you've caught someone in their sin, like the woman was caught in adultery, but it also implies that someone has been caught by their sin. So I think it's helpful to kind of think of this as a category of, of a, a, a faithful Christian who has inadvertently stumbled into sin. An inadvertent sin is still sin, but we address it with, with a different approach. The beginning verses of Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, that we go and try to correct them. Maybe this is a brother or sister who has just been immature. They've been foolish. They didn't know that they were getting so close to the edge, but they haven't, and they've slipped. They've gotten caught in their sin. So this is what Paul is referring to. If, if anyone is caught in any tri- kind of transgression, what's supposed to happen? Look again at verse 1. You who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. These brothers or sisters who have been caught in their transgression need help. And who's going to help them? The rest of the church. Paul addresses these verses to you who are spiritual. And that's not referring to an elite group of Christians. Like there's, there's some level of, you know, varsity Christians that are in the church and they're the ones that do all the heavy lifting. No, every Christian is spiritual. We've seen this all throughout the book of Galatians, haven't we? That this church, even this church, oh foolish Galatians, they're spiritual. They received the Holy Spirit, he says in the beginning of chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 14, he says that they have Abraham's blessing because they received the promised spirit. In chapter 4, verse 6, he says, you are the Christians who have received the spirit of adoption. So you call God Abba, Father. And certainly in chapter 5, 25, these are included in the we who are to keep in step with the spirit. All Christians are spiritual. So Paul is saying all of you have a responsibility to one another. If anyone is caught in any transgression, 
But I do think Paul has in view a, uh, a kind of Christian who has their dimmer switch turned up when he says, you who are spiritual. Do you remember that analogy that Caleb introduced us to last week? He got it from Andy Nacelli, that every Christian is like someone on a dimmer switch. Do you have a dimmer switches in your house? You know how it works, right? There's the little click first, right? Like it clicks, and then you can turn it up brighter or dimmer. That's every Christian. We've all been clicked on. But at any given day, at any given time, some Christians are just going to be brighter than others. And what Paul is saying is that these Christians who have gotten caught in their transgression, well, they need somebody that's got their dimmer switch turned up brighter to come and do what? Restore them. Restore them. I love this word the more that I think about it. It's like the way that you would restore an old home or a classic car. You see this, this thing that's beat up in front of you, but you know how much value it has. And you know in your mind what it could be if it was just fixed up. How magnificent it could be with just a little love and a little bit of attention. That's what we are to do is to restore. Sure, the paint's chipping here, and this needs to be fixed. And how do we restore in a spirit of gentleness. And that makes so much sense, right? If you're trying to fix up a classic car, you wouldn't take the sledgehammer to it. You would use just the right tool and just the right place with tenderness and with care. And it makes so much sense that Paul would use this word gentle to describe those who are spiritual because gentleness is the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? That we would be gentle as we restore those who have gotten caught in their transgression. And even more than that, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit because Jesus himself was gentle. And he's given us his Spirit. That's the Spirit that's in us. It's making us more like Christ. Think about how gentle Jesus is. Randy prayed those words. He wouldn't break a bruised reed. He wouldn't quench a smoldering wick. Somebody that's hurting, somebody that's flickering, He's gentle with them as he restores them. Restores them to what? To the image of God. In one way, our work of sanctification is just that word restoration. It's, it's Jesus by his spirit, through his word, and the church turning us back into, restoring us back into what we were always meant to be, the image of God, which Jesus is perfectly. That's the work of the gospel and so in these verses, the Holy Spirit is just inviting us into that restoring work among one another. But at the end of verse 1, Paul gives us a really important warning. As he calls us to restore others in the spirit of gentleness, he says, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And this is an important warning for two reasons. The first is that when we go to restore someone who has caught in a transgression, we have to get close to their transgression. And so Paul is saying, keep watch on yourself that you don't get caught in the same thing that caught them. That when you address them, you do it prayerfully and with accountability and with a sober-mindedness so that you are a restoring influence on them and they are not a corrupting influence on you. So you've got to keep watch on yourself that way. But I think you have to keep watch on yourself another way when you go to restore a brother or sister that is sinning. And that is to keep watch on your pride. 
It's so easy to become proud when by God's grace you are in that position where you're just a little bit brighter than they are. You can see their sin a little bit better than they can. It's just so easy to think I'm better than them. Paul says, no, keep watch on that. Keep watch on yourself in that. Remember verse 26 of chapter five, that we not be conceited. Just because you are strong today, it doesn't mean that you can't be weak tomorrow. So I think the spirit of gentleness and this posture of humility are so related. John Stott said this, our conduct towards others is determined by our opinion of ourselves. I'm gonna say that again. Our conduct towards others is determined by our opinion of ourselves. Keep watch on yourself that you not be tempted. But when we have this right view of ourselves, when we understand that we are just as weak, just as fallible, just as prone to wander as our brothers and sisters are, Then we can do what the Spirit commands us to do in verse two. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. We've all got burdens, amen? We all have burdens, the burden of sin, but but more than that, the burden of uh, just emotional pain, the burden of physical needs, material needs. We all have different kinds of burdens that we come into this place with and we are all called to bear one another's burdens. Don't start to believe that you don't have burdens. Certainly don't start to believe that you too do not have the burden of sin. This is like what 1 John chapter one says. If anyone says he has no sin, he deceives himself. And the truth is not in him, but if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We come into the church with that same heart. None of us is without sin. We are all confessing our sins and forgiven. And this is, I think, where Paul gets in verse three of our text. If anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Same idea. Or this is similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. We have to understand what's common to all of us, that we are all weak, that we all have needs. And with that right view of ourselves, we help each other. This is all about helping one another. Verse two, again, we all have to bear one another's burdens. And when we do that, we fulfill what? The law of Christ. The law of Christ. This is, this is fascinating. Think about this. The law of Christ. What, is that, what does that mean? Obviously, this is, this is Paul's contrast to the law of Moses that he has been engaging with this whole letter. This law of Moses specifically focused on circumcision and then practicing these other Jewish regulations that these false teachers had come into this church saying that you need to keep this law, this law that Paul says is itself a burden. It's a yoke of slavery that nobody can bear. This law that that Paul says was only meant to be temporary. It's not supposed to stick around forever. This is a babysitter. This is a guardian. It's only for a time until you reach maturity in Christ. This law that Paul says is only a curse. Because if you try to keep that law, you're gonna fail. And when you fail, you know that you deserve the wages of sin, which is death. 
And that law, that old law, the law of Moses, Paul has been at pains to say, look, Christ has fulfilled that. He's fulfilled the law of Moses. He fulfilled it by by coming as a man and obeying all of those regulations that we couldn't obey by keeping the law of God to the letter perfectly on our behalf. And Christ fulfilled the law of Moses because he became a curse for us when he died on the cross. When Christ was raised from the dead, everyone that was united to Christ came out from underneath that law, but we have been put under a new law, the law of Christ. It's all about this contrast with Moses and this better law. And what is the law of Christ? Love. That's the law of Christ, love. Paul has already said this in chapter five, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We've been set free from this old law and we have been brought out into freedom to obey a different law. And that doesn't make sense, but that's like the Apostle James calls this the law of liberty. But it's a law that is not a burden. It's a law that is burden-bearing. It's a law that Christ has already fulfilled on our behalf, and now he leads us in this law. This This is all the third use of the law, isn't it? Christ is guiding us into obeying this law of Christ, which Paul describes in verse 2 of chapter 6, is bearing one another's burdens. It's just another way of saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And he calls it the law of Christ. And that's not just because this law came from Christ and therefore must be obeyed because Jesus is our Lord, but it's also the law of Christ because it is exemplified in Christ. This law of Christ is just an expression of the gospel. Because God has borne our burdens, hasn't he, in his son. John Webster is a, was a British theologian. He passed away just a few years ago. And, and he was a brilliant theologian, but he was also a magnificent preacher. And I've just been so helped by his sermons. And he wrote a sermon on these verses. And he says this. God himself, in the person of his son, sees the entirety of of human misery and failure, the hopelessness with which we thrash around in our sins. And he doesn't pass us by, but stops on his way and helps us. He makes plain to us that we are in a mess and that we're in our mess because we're fools and sinners. But as he shows us that truth, he helps us with infinite mercy condescension and compassion. He takes upon himself the burden of our sins and not only carries it, but carries it away. That's the gospel. That we were all burdened with our sin and messes that we have all made and God saw that and he wasn't proud. He didn't care only about his own interests, but he humbled himself. He said, let me bear that burden, all of it. Give me your sin." I'm your redeemer. Put your sin upon me. I'll carry that burden to the cross and I will die so that you can be set free. 
And the law of Christ just says, brothers and sisters, go and do likewise. Bear one another's burdens. Of course, none of us can bear the burden of one another's sins, but even more than just our sins, Christ bears all of our burdens. He stands now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, and he says, give me all of your burdens. Give me your grief. Give me your sadness. Give me your anxiety. Give me your sickness. Give me your concerns. All of them, and I'll carry them up. And I'll even use my church to do it. Bear one another's burdens. First John chapter 3, John puts it like this. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Do you hear the same drumbeat in all of this that we have received so much help from God? And so that it's only right that once we understand that we would help one another. Those outside of the church and especially those inside of the church. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we bear one another's burdens? Well, you can, again, connect this to verse 1. I think verse 1 is just rightly seen as one example of the many ways that we bear one another's burdens. You bear one another's burdens by when you see somebody wandering into sin, you, you go near to them and you help them, just like Jesus did. But there's so many other ways that you can bear those burdens. And Paul is going to get into all of those other ways, or many of those other ways, beginning in verse 6. But before he does, he takes what to me is a really surprising turn beginning in verse four. So this is our second point. Verses four and five is the load we bear. So verses one, and one to three are, are primarily about our corporate life together, how we bear one another's burdens, especially with relation to sin, how we, how we restore one another, we try to correct one another when we see somebody wandering off into sin. But lest we start to think that when it comes to our sin and our relationship with God, there's no room for individual responsibility, in verses 4 and 5, Paul is going to make that very clear. And actually, he starts getting to this in verse 3. So look again at verse 3. He says, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So Paul just called you nothing. How's that feel? In our culture that is so focused on self-esteem and positive thinking, a message that says you have to understand you're nothing that's offensive. But that's actually the foundation of the gospel. And when Paul comes out and he says, you are nothing, what he's not saying is you have no value. He's not saying you have no worth or dignity. Remember, it's precisely because we have so much value that Jesus sees in us that he wants to restore us. But when Paul says, you are nothing, what he means is you bring nothing to God. You have nothing to boast in. When it comes to your standing before God, you're not bringing any of your good works. You're not bringing anything that might commend you to God. As someone once said, with regards to our salvation and to our right standing with God, the only thing that we bring to the equation is our sin. We are nothing. That's what is in view in verses 4 and 5. Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load. Paul talks about our neighbors, and it's so easy in this life, isn't it, to 
to try and find our standing and how we compare with our neighbor. Do I make more money than they do? Am I more attractive than they are? Am I a better mom or a better dad? I struggle with this. And, and when it's really bad for me, it's not just do they think that I'm better, but do, ha, have they convinced other people that I'm better? Do other people think that I am better than that person is? Do other people think that I am better than that person somehow? When people have the opinion of us that we want, we feel really, really good about ourselves. And we believe our own hype. We don't even question whether or not they're right. Of course I'm as awesome as they think I am. And when other people don't have the opinion of us that we want, how do we feel? We're crushed. But these verses remove all of that pretext. When we stand before the throne of God, what other people think about us is not going to matter at all. Even in this life, if in this life people think you are something, when you stand before God, you won't be justified by their opinion of you. And on the other hand, if people in this life think you're nobody, if you just feel like everybody in the world thinks you're a loser, when you stand before the throne of God, he's not gonna ask for their input. Hallelujah. When we stand before the throne of God, each of us will do that as an individual bearing our own load. You're not going to be judged on your neighbor's standard. You're not going to be judged by your own standard. You are going to be judged by God's standard, which is perfection. And if in this life you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you will realize that you're nobody when you stand before the throne of God. You will realize that for all the good things that you have done, there is no way that you can cancel out the debt of sin that you owe and that you stand before a perfect and holy God. And he will be right to judge you for that load of sin that you bear. And he will throw you into hell forever. But there's another way. There's another way. God's standard is perfection, and Jesus met that standard. And so in this life now, this is the gospel call that you can give that load to Jesus. And on that day when you stand before the throne of God, you will say, I'm nothing, but he's somebody, and he's taken my load. He has borne my load on the tree. Here's the amazing thing about the gospel. When you're nobody, and you confess that you're nobody, you become somebody. You become somebody in Christ. And so in verse four, when Paul says, let everyone examine their own work, test your own work, because that is what you will be judged according to. Christ will remove all of your sins and all of these good works that you have done in faith. You're gonna bring those to God. You're gonna bring them to God in a way that you get any approval, uh, approval from God because of them, but you're gonna, you're gonna bring them to God and say, Lord, I was doing these works for you. And you will hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Those good works have not been what earned your way into heaven. It was only Christ who did that, but your good works will glorify God in that day.
But again, we stand before God alone. So as I said, this is an interesting stream of thought that Paul has here. If you take verses one to five all together, I think what he's trying to get at is this balance between the corporate and the individual reality of our faith. Everyone stands before God as an individual, but God didn't save a bunch of individuals. He saved a church. And so even though each of us will bear a load before God, we are called to hold one another's burdens, to help everybody carry that load to the foot of the cross and keep carrying it there until that day we stand before the throne. That we help one another individually bear our load, and that includes the loads of good works. So this all leads into these closing verses, six through 10. This is our third point, the love we sow. The love we sow. These are all three L words. Did you see that? I have to point it out or you're not going to notice. I worked really hard at that. The love we sow. Verse, verse 6 in this passage, it stands out a little bit. It says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now just take that verse by itself. It's clearly about the members of the church providing financially for their pastors, especially for the ones that, that teach and labor in the word. And that itself is a principle that comes up again and again in the New Testament. Jesus himself is very clear on this. A laborer is worthy of his wages. It's right that someone that works in the word would, would be supported by those in the church. And let me just say, as we come to this verse, thankfully this isn't an issue that I feel like I need to press on real hard here, church. Good job. You're so generous. And I know that I, I speak for our staff when I say that we feel provided for, okay? Well, the question is, what does this have to do with the bigger argument here that Paul is making? Why does, why does he come here suddenly when he was just talking about correcting people and then the law of Christ? What does this mean? Well, I think you can understand verse six is another example of burden bearing, of mutual burden bearing. I don't know if you think about it like this. When a teacher comes into the pulpit, they open up the book, they are bearing the burden of your lack of knowledge. They're bearing the burden of your need to be taught the word of God. And at the same time, those who are taught are bearing the burden of the teacher's livelihood. I don't know if you know this, it takes a lot of time to write a sermon. It takes a lot of time to study, for me especially. It takes a lot of time. And I gladly do that. That's why I entered into ministry. Because I felt that burden. I felt the burden that God's people need to be taught the word of God. And I wanted to dedicate my life to doing that. I will happily spend hours and hours and hours a week studying for you. I know Ryan will as well. And others of our ministers on staff will spend hours and hours a week planning our missions strategy. Or, or hours and hours a week planning to teach your children. We gladly bear that burden for you. Because we know you need it. You have a need. But if I spent hours and hours a week preparing a sermon and I came home at the end of the day and I didn't have any food or anything to provide my children, I couldn't spend hours and hours a week writing sermons. That would be too big a burden for me. And so you all bear that burden by sharing. There's a lot I could say about this, but just look at verse six. I wanna highlight that one word. It says, they share all good things. That means it's, it's voluntary. 
You're not commanded. You're not, you're not forced to share something. You share gladly. You share willingly. I want you to have this. And Paul is saying that is this relationship of mutual burden bearing between the taught and the teacher. It's, it's volitional. It's one that's entered into through love. That those that are taught share. And this is in contrast to how other pagan teachers in the first century approached things. They charged a fee for their teaching. They said, I've got some secret knowledge that you really need to have and you pay the price and I'll give it to you. Y'all, I would do this for free if I could. And I know that you share with us generously and gladly out of your own heart and in that we bear one another's burdens. But I think the bigger idea in verse six, the reason that Paul in his mind thought this was right to stick right here in this, this flow of thought that he has is not just that it's an example of bearing burdens, but it might be one of the most important burdens that the church bears is providing for the ministry of the word. I'll say that again. One of the most, if not the most important burden that you church bear is making sure that every Sunday somebody can stand up right here and open the book and tell you what it says. We could let a lot of other things go in our budget, but we cannot compromise on this because this is the greatest burden that you have to know what this says. How do we know how we love each other? This tells us what is love. This tells us about the love of God in Jesus Christ. And this tells us more and more about all of the things that we ought to do to love one another and bear one another's burdens. How do we know what transgression is that we're trying to restore other people from falling into? This tells us. How do we know what it looks like to go out into the world and accomplish what God has commanded and commissioned us to do in the world? This tells us. So if we don't have this, we have nothing. So verse six, at the beginning of this this closing section, what it's saying is the most important thing that you can have is a ministry of the word. And so church, let me say this again. This is not coming from a place of we are feeling the burden of not being provided for. I'm just trying to tell you that dollar for dollar, if you wanna do good in the world, if you wanna change the world, if you wanna do more in the world, share more to the ministry of the word. Make it happen. And not just happen here. The more you share The more you bear the burden of preaching, it allows us to to plant more churches around the world to make sure that there are more pulpits and more places that can open up this word and bear the burden of people not knowing what God says and what God has done in Jesus Christ. So let me challenge you. Let me challenge you, especially if, if you are not one of those bearing the burden of the preaching ministry in this church. Well, these other people are bearing it for you but there are other people who have the burden of the ignorance of God's word that you can lift up by by contributing to the preaching of God's word in these churches, in this church and churches that we can start. And when you do that, okay, this is where this is going. When you do that, when when you invest, when you share so that the ministry of the word can keep on happening, what you're doing is you are sowing to eternity. And that's where he's going in verse seven. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life.
So if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, we've had a good run of plant metaphors. And a lot of them have to do with my office, which is fine. Well, here's another good plant metaphor. Paul likens our loving, our bearing one another's burdens to a farmer sowing seeds in a field. Sowing seeds in a field, it's, it's hard work. You have to break up the ground. You've got to make sure the seeds fall in the right places. And when you sow seeds, you don't expect to reap a crop the same day. You know that it takes time. But the principle is simple. Whatever you sow determines what you are going to reap. So let's say that you really want to eat your own homegrown watermelon. Well, I checked the almanac. Right now is still a fine time to plant watermelon seeds. So if you want to eat your own homegrown watermelon, you're going to have to wait a little bit. But what you need to do today is go into your garden and plant watermelon seeds. And in 80 days, says the almanac, you will have your own watermelon to eat. But if you say to me, oh, I really, really want to eat my own homegrown watermelon. And then you go out into your garden and you sow pumpkin seeds. I would say one of two things. Either you need to quit gardening. You can't tell the difference between a watermelon seed and a pumpkin seed. There's no helping you. Or I would question whether or not you really want watermelon. Because what you sow into shows what you really hope to reap someday. And that's the principle here. In verse 7, God's not mocked. Okay, we, can, we can be really deceived. We can really deceive ourselves, and we can even be deceitful in this life. But in that day when you bear your load before God, if you come with a handful of pumpkins when he was wanting watermelons, and you just say, I don't know what happens. God's not mocked. Then you know exactly what was happening. This is what you were sowing into. And so that's what you were going to reap in that day. You plant pumpkin seeds, you're going to get pumpkins. And if you sow to the flesh, verse 8 says, you are going to reap corruption. There's a lot that I could say about this. I think this is kind of a, a principle that you're meant to mine a lot of thoughts out of. But in the context of this letter specifically, let me apply it this way. First, Think about what the false teaching was that was affecting this church in, in the, or these churches in Galatia. This false teaching was focused on the flesh, specifically on circumcision, but then also just in the effort that we and our own flesh can put forward. The false teaching in Galatia was that you can, by the works of the flesh, reap spiritual benefits. And Paul is saying, those are two different kinds of plants. You cannot sow to the flesh and hope to reap eternal life. You have to sow into the Spirit, and by the Spirit you reap eternal life. That's by faith in Christ alone, by faith alone, not in works of your own flesh. So I think Paul has that in view, but then again he brings up the word flesh in chapter 5 with these works of the flesh. 
sexual immorality, drunkenness, idolatry, envy, all of these other things that he goes into. And what he's saying is when you sow into those things, by, by participating in those works of the flesh, whether in the life of your mind or by acting out on them, when you are, when you are pursuing those works of the flesh, you are sowing those works. And so you know what you're going to reap. Even if you deceive yourself, you have to know that this is true. That When have those works of the flesh ever actually satisfied your eternal longings? They don't. They're fleeting pleasures at best. If not, just bringing with it all kinds of consequences in this life. And certainly, their sin for which Jesus died on the cross. As Paul is saying, working those works of the flesh, sowing into the flesh, you're never going to reap the fruit of the Spirit through sexual immorality or through drunkenness or through divisiveness. It's just not how it works. No, you sow seeds that come from the fruit of the Spirit. I was thinking about, about this. You know, Paul's talking about fruit and spirit. And if you go back to Genesis 1 and you look at how God made the whole world and made, made the way that it works, it says, God made fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to to its kind. This is how it works with a watermelon. Where do you get the seeds from a watermelon? From the watermelon. The seed, the fruit begets the seed, which begets the fruit. And so what Paul is saying here, so to the Spirit, what he's saying is these fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, you take the seeds out of that fruit and you keep on sowing it. So how do you bear the fruit of love? You sow the seed of love. How? Bear one another's burdens. Love each other like Christ has loved us. Lay down your lives for the brothers. And when you do that, what do you get? More love. You sow the seed of joy. You get more joy. Gentle with one another. And you get more gentleness. You get it in your own life. You will grow in that fruit. But brothers and sisters, you're going to bear it in one another's lives. You're sowing those seeds in one another's lives. And what does it all lead to? Again, verse 8. Eternal life. Eternal life. That's the watermelon that's waiting for us at the end. Life with God forever. And so we sow now because that's what we want. And we don't just want it for us. We want it for each other. We want to hold out that vision of eternal life for one another and love one another so that we can all have it. We can all reap it in that day. And it's hard work. It's hard work. It's, it's often so hard that we want to give up. So that's why Paul closes this section with verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Everyone, that means everybody in the whole world but especially to those who are of the household or the family of faith. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray for this. This is impossible apart from your grace. This is impossible apart from your spirit. This is, the, this is what spiritual people do. And so, God, we ask for your spirit. We ask that your spirit would be at work in us, bearing this fruit in us and leading us in this. But, Lord, that we wouldn't just love with, with our words, but we would love with our actions. 
and how we care for one another. We bear one another's burdens. And, and God, I pray that if there's anyone who hasn't laid their burdens down at the feet of the cross, if they, if they still think they're somebody, Lord, help them to realize that they're nobody, but in you they have everything. In Christ, who's our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Let us stand and respond and to resolve to live a life to the glory of God and to the good of others. Rest in God alone, my rock and my salvation, a fortress strong against my foes, and I will not be shaken. Though lips may bless and hearts may curse, and lies like arrows pierce me, I'll fix my
God. Yes, that's our God. He's a redeemer. Has he redeemed your sins? You still think you're somebody. When right now is your opportunity to confess, I am nothing. I have nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. But I have a redeemer. You can believe in Jesus right now and he will bear all of your burdens of sin. And he will hold out to you the promise that you will reap eternal life if you don't give up. If you have questions about this gospel, this good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, don't, don't leave here without asking that question. We'll have some pastors up here up front. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to answer questions that you have. Or again, you can email us. And church, I leave you with this exhortation from 1 John again. Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. You're dismissed.